Our scripture reading today is taken from the book of Acts. It's going to be all of chapter 27. I hope you've been brushing up on your nautical vocabulary because we've got a shipwreck ahead of us this morning in the text, just to give you a little bit of a heads up. Acts 27. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there, on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind, called the Northeaster, struck down from the land, And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, About midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship 
and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning and welcome again to Holy Trinity. As uh, Katina said, what are you preaching on this morning? Just a shipwreck. That's what, that's what the sermon is on this morning. Um, I'm really glad to be in person again. It's been a few weeks now, but I just it's good to be together. It's good for my soul anyway. And uh, we are jumping, as we said, to... Uh, Swiss Hotel next week, so please make plans uh, to be there as well. Thank you to the musicians for their music. I would say that uh, as I have gotten older, and maybe this is just COVID, I'm not sure, but I enjoy being outside more than ever, and so I'm trying to always be outside. Uh, I think being able to work virtually meant I was working outside as much of the year as I could, including uh, having a fire pit. Um, my wife and I, about a year ago, um, either because of a midlife crisis or to ward off a midlife crisis, most people, most guys would buy like a red convertible, and we bought two red kayaks. Um, so I've been kayaking probably 50 times in the last year or so, and really, really been enjoying it. And one one day, about two or three months ago, can't remember how long ago this was, I was out kayaking. Sometimes I'm in the river. Sometimes I'm, there's some lagoons down by Hyde Park. But uh, I was in Lake Michigan, and it was a calm day. And I thought, you know, this is a great day to kayak towards the water retention plants that are out kind of about three miles out. So I just started paddling, and uh, I made it about two miles, I would say, because it seemed like it was getting a little bit bigger, but it, I really wasn't close. And then the wind changed. Um, the wind had been kind of blowing from the, the, the south, kind of southwest, and then it changed from the, the, to the northwest. And it started raining, and the clouds started coming out, 
And there were some waves, and I was like, okay, I better turn around. No, I'll keep going. Then I did turn around, and as I turned around, the waves started just get a little bigger, you know. And then maybe like one foot swells, and then I was, then there were three foot swells. And I'm like kind of paddling up the swells and paddling down the swells and paddling up and paddling down. I wasn't really that nervous. But then the swells turned into three foot um, white white caps. So they, the waves then started coming. They weren't even going to shore. They were coming away from the shore <laughs> towards me. And so I'm paddling. And then I just like leaned the wrong way and I capsized. I'm still here, so obviously I didn't die. But I did, ha- I won't tell you the rest of the story. There is more of the story, but I had to swim not two miles, but about 500 feet into shore, and it was very messy. Lots of uh, waves crashing against some rocks and lost my kayak, and it was a, it was a grand ad- adventure. I say that because um, in life, you can just be paddling along, and there's a gentle breeze, and then suddenly the wind changes. And you're not exactly ready for the changing of the wind. And uh, this, the text that we're going to look at is actually the point of the text is really how Paul got from Caesarea to Rome. That's actually the point of the text. That's why Luke includes it. But what he also includes, like you can tell that Luke is kind of a, a, a sailor here. Um, Luke is in the ship. If you look at uh, verse 1, it says, when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, uh, Luke is there. So he's, he's like writing this as he's also sailing along. And what, what I want to do today is just talk about, the title of my sermon is this, God, God in the Storm. God in the Storm. And um, I have one of my friends who kind of has been living in about four different cities and so mostly watching online and she said, you know, I I don't really like Acts, just to be honest, because it reads kind of like a travelogue. So I texted her this week and I said, if you think it reads like a travelogue, that's all this one is. So my argument today is really a simple point that God's gospel adventure will arrive at its destination. God's going to bring Paul. That's really what this text is about, is that God's going to bring Paul where he is supposed to be, which is in Rome. But the pathway isn't a really a straight line. It's not really a calm matter. And uh, what I really want to do is to use Paul's life for a moment to kind of explode the way that we think about what the Christian life is supposed to be. Because it's very easy for us to like absorb the American dream into Christianity and then make Christianity about climbing the corporate ladder or to make Christianity about having that nice house and the white picket fence. Um, and when you look at Paul, he kind of explodes that being what normal Christianity really is supposed to be. So I'm just going to, I got three myths that I want to explode today. I'm going to ask you, if you would, to just bow in prayer with me. Our Father in heaven, we give you great thanks on this day for the nature that surrounds us, for the lessons that we find in your creation, for the purpose that you give us in our lives. And we ask that you would be today with those who feel weak or feeble 
In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So the main idea of the text really is how did Paul get from Caesarea to Rome? That's why this is included in the text. But uh, one of the things you should keep in mind is why, maybe ask yourself, why did Paul want to be in Rome? He actually gives us an answer in Romans chapter 1 verses 14 to 16. And he said, basically he says, it's always been my desire to preach in Rome. And right before that he says that he's under obligation both to the Greeks, that is like the most highly educated elites, and to the barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. Now if you think of what Rome was, you think of it as the center of this great empire. And through Pax Romana, these, uh, the Roman road system had really connected much of Asia Minor, and so people were able to travel. And when Paul thought about Rome, he thought about the chance to preach Yes, to those who were in the places of power, but also to preach freedom to those who were shackled in chains. Part of what Paul loved as an as a urban lover is the density and the diversity of the city and the chance to be able to proclaim freedom to strong and weak, to powerful and to the poor alike. And our story in the text, in one way, is really a fulfillment of the thesis statement in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, where Jesus says to the disciples, like, hey, are you going to fulfill the kingdom now? And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to fulfill the kingdom now. Or actually what he says is, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. But then he says, but you will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, from, Ju- from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so this is part of that thesis saying, can you imagine? If you, if you have a Bible um, with a map in it, you can look at the back of it and sh- it'll show you like Paul's missionary journey from Caesarea, which is actually not that far from Jerusalem, and then all the way to Italy. You can kind of see how long his voyage is. Anybody a sailor here? Anybody grow up sailing? Raise your hand right now. Okay, we have a sailor in the back. Way to go. We have one sailor. Uh, everybody else, isn't that, I think that's Anna. Is that you, Ann? Ann. Everybody else is a landlubber. I did grow up sailing a little bit. Uh, Katina said you might need uh, to check in on your terminology. So the one word I didn't understand or didn't know was the word Lee. Maybe some of you know what that means, but it, it talked about the Lee of Cyprus and the Lee of Crete. What it means is it's like the sheltered part of a, an island that doesn't receive any of the wind. So they're like sailing just underneath the wind. That's kind of what it means there. Um, in a way, what Luke is saying, and in a way what my main point is of this message is that um, the gospel goes on a wild adventure that meets its destination, that God is going to bring Paul where he needs to go. The gospel has a certain definite destination. The first myth that I want to challenge today is this. While the gospel has a definite destination, that doesn't mean that life is going to go in a straight line. So if you you follow what happens to Paul in all of the um, ports and all of the places that are mentioned in the text you realize that he's, he's kind of tacking a bit and he's, he's trying to go to one harbor and he's not able to go to that harbor. Um, 
verses 1 to 12, I counted 19 different geographical uh, locations there. And that's actually kind of a problem. Puts us as it is a distinct disadvantage because Americans are so terrible at geography, right? F.F. Um, F. Bruce argues that Luke devotes so much of his narrative to the details of these few weeks at sea because of his desire, Luke's desire, the author's desire, to emphasize the divine determination that Paul's purpose of seeing Rome must be fulfilled despite all the factors that have rendered him his getting there unlikely in the extreme. In these open opening 12 verses, there's 19 different locations, and I'll just read you a few of them. One of them is Italy. Everybody wants to go to Italy, I know. Uh, Adramidium, Asia, Macedonia, Thessalonica, Cyprus, Cilicia, Pamphylia, Myra, Lycia, Crete, off of Salmon, Fairhavens, Lacia, Phoenix, and Crete. Luke loves to travel and that he's showing that God's plans for Paul have a destination. There's, a, there's an author whose name is D. Hawk. He was one of the founders of Visa, actually. And he writes this kind of quasi-spiritual book with a lot of regret in it about how he founded Visa and how he helped all of the bankers to... Um, cooperate together in order to form this organization. But his part of the point of his book is that it, Visa became kind of a leaderless organization, and he coins this word, which is the word chaotic. And chaotic means that there's just enough chaos in it that it's creative, and then just enough order to it that you can actually get something done. And Paul's life is, it's a great word for Paul's life. It's chaotic. Like, you don't know which way he's going to go, where he's going to land. Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse chapter 11 and 12, he talks about being beaten many times, being sleepless, uh, being shipwrecked several times. That was his life. It was completely chaotic. But it had a purpose, and it had principles to it, even if he didn't have control over it and wasn't able to command it. Life isn't linear. There's a tradition at the University of Chicago. Um, at the University of Chicago, when you become a freshman, you are no longer just like a freshman. You're a first year. But you're, you uh, are called a scholar. And so they have this like uh, welcoming ceremony that they call the Aims of Education, where one of the professors tells you, why are you at this great university? And the speaker that spoke this year is a winning sociologist named Kimberly K. Huang. And uh, she is a Vietnamese sociologist who really came out, kind of that, that, that story of coming out of oppression and hardship and poverty, but this is her main point is that in her talk that she just gave is life is not linear. If it were, there would be nothing to discover. <laughs> so part of, the, part of the point of what she's saying is that your life will take you in this direction, in this direction, and you can try to control it and hold it in, but you might miss out on what God wants you to discover that is over here. And so the, the, the simple application is just be prepared for the turns of life and know that God does have a destination in mind for Paul, but also for you as well. That's myth number one is that life is linear. Myth number two is that life is calm. So 
the first one is let's break the idea that life just moves in a straight line. And the second one is let's break the idea that life is simply calm. This is kind of verses 32, 13 to 32. Put it differently. There's tempestuous waters ahead. There's a tremendous shift in verses 13 to 14. If you look at it, you can see it here. It says, Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. And then hear this. But soon a tempestuous wind called a northeaster struck down from the land. And the ship was caught, could not face the wind, and we gave way to it, and we were driven along. That is how life goes. There's like a gentle breeze, and then something else comes your way. You know, most of the time when, when people ask you how you're doing, you just say, fine, you know. And if you want to be really revealing, someone asks you how you're doing, you say, okay. That like lets them into your heart to know that you're really having a challenging week, you know. But try this. Uh, next time somebody asks you that, just say, I'm violently storm-tossed. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here, or, or Luke is saying, I'm violently storm-tossed. I mean, is there any better way to describe the last 15 months? Violently storm-tossed. Of course, for them, this is literal. What kind of sailor are you if you show, throw the ship's tackle overboard? They throw the wheat overboard a little bit later. Look at what verse 20 says. Neither sun nor stars appeared. Is Paul going to get to Rome? Well, yeah. But he's going to get to Rome in complete darkness. <laughs> that kind of darkness where you can't see anything. Is the good news of God's love for the world going to get to the ends of the earth? Well, yes, it is. But Paul is going to go through a storm and through darkness, and Paul is going to go through sunless days and starless nights. Think of it this way. The, the, dark night of the, soul, the dark night of the soul may be between you and your final destination. And there's a lot of teaching out there in the church today that says God doesn't ever let you go through any hardship, any dark nights. But what happens if you believe that truth and then you're violently storm-tossed? Does that mean God is not there? What's so beautiful and powerful about Paul's chaotic adventure here is it's not just a storm, but God is in the storm with him. I love that Paul is human enough in verse 21 I heard a couple of you laugh when this was being read. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, guys, you should have listened to me what I said before. <laughs> like, why is that included, Luke? <laughs> He's just getting in a little dig at Paul, you know? Or I like it because it sort of shows the humanness of Paul. Like, who really likes a person who comes back around and goes, you know, you remember that before I was the one who told us we should have done this, you know? And then he tells them, not just that he, they should have listened to him, but he gives them some encouragement. Listen to the encouragement. In verse 22, he says, I urge you to take heart. And then he quotes to them with the angel what the angel had said to him in verse 23. 
For this very night, there stood before me an angel of God, of the God whom I belong to and whom I worship. And he said to me, listen to these words, do not be afraid. Paul, you must stand before Caesar. God has a destination for Paul. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. He's talking to the other sailors, 276 people. He tells them, so take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. God had a destination for Jonah, and Jonah couldn't outrun God. And God had a destination for Ruth and Naomi, but it included a famine. It included the death of their husbands and Naomi's son-in-laws. Part of the message of the scriptures is really simple. Take heart in the darkness. We sang earlier, holy, holy, holy. Though the darkness hides thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see. We think that the darkness means that God is not there. Picture the cross. That moment in history when Jesus when Jesus breathed his last breath, the sky went dark. There were no stars that could be seen. And it seemed like all that was good was over. And yet God was in the darkness. And God was in the plan. One of the things I love about this passage also is that Paul tells them in verse 25 to take heart, but not because they have faith, but because he has faith. I think that's really profound. Because you will go through circumstances in life where you don't have enough faith to make it through. And you need somebody else's faith to lean on. It reminds me of the story that uh, mentor of mine, Kent Hughes, tells. This is in his book, Liberating Ministry from the Success Syndrome. When his, his first pastorate that he had was a church plant and this was in the days of like church growth and they did like all these surveys and they figured out people told him if you go plant a church on this plot of land here you'll connect perfectly with the other people that are around there and if you do these four things then you'll grow and it didn't happen so he got discouraged and was like where are you God he actually thought God was wicked for calling him to do ministry but then not giving them success in the ministry. So there's a spot where he is taking all of his belongings and like putting them in a pickup truck, but also kind of throwing them into the pickup truck, like some books and things. And his wife sees this, and there's a point where she says in the book, she says, Kent, I know you don't have faith right now. Hold on to my faith, because I have enough for both of us. And I think that's such a gift to think that there are other people around you who might be able to help you along when you need a kind of lifeline. Not a, 276 soldiers or sailors without hope. And one guy has hope. And in reality, that's a picture of who Jesus is and what he's like because even your friends are going to fail you. And their faith will fail at times. But Jesus 
never fails. And he goes all the way to the end. Peter denies him. Peter's like, no, I'll never deny you. And he does. And when the lights go out, when Christ is on the cross, he dies with faith that the Father will send the Spirit to resurrect him again. It's why we sing sometimes, he will hold you fast. Because sometimes our grip starts to lighten up. Some of you counsel at Lawndale Christian Health Clinic. Thank you, because your faith in a dark storm is a lifeline for other people when they are in a storm. And others of you provide medical help for people in the hospital who are going through the storm. And we need a lifeline. All of us do. The Greeks, of course, thought that the god of the storm was named Poseidon. And uh, the stories of Poseidon are great. But that's the god of the storm. And Christians believe that God is the creator and that Jesus has the power to calm the storm, to speak and calm it, but also that he's in the storm with us. So part of the beauty of this picture is the angel coming into the storm. It's like that picture of Jesus asleep in the boat and everybody's freaking out. The disciples are like, why are you asleep? Wake up. And then he speaks and says, be still. So myth number one is that life is linear. Myth, myth number two is that life is calm. We want our lives to be calm, but the wind will change. And the last thing I want to say is that life isn't safe. And uh, we all want our lives to be safe. I had dinner with someone last night, and they told me, yeah, we often, that's what we say now, be safe, you know, because we do want to be safe. But I guarantee you that every person in this room is going to die. And we don't want to die. And we want to be safe. And there's something, it, this, this, in some ways, this point seems like it contradicts the last point, which is, or the last verse, which is verse 44. It says, and it says, well, I'll read from verse 33. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan, and he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land, and the rest on planks or pieces of the ship. And so it was they were all brought safely to land. Brought safely to land. They were brought safely. But it's kind of a funny picture of brought safely, like grab a plank, everybody. If you can swim, then jump in and start. That's the idea of safety. And the whole thing that happens to Paul is that he gets to Rome and he preaches and then they remove his head from his shoulders and his neck. Eventually, he dies. And I, I, again, I want to emphasize this because if you think that God has said that you will always, like there is safety in him. But he also has determined that his son would go to the cross and that's the picture of what the Christian life looks like. So if we expect there never to be a storm and never to be a change of course, then we'll throw away God when we get into the storm. And this is saying God is in the storm. Verse 27, sorry, verse 30, 33. 
I love this picture also. As the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some. It, it reminds me a little bit of what mothers say, you know. They, they always want you to, like, put a sweater on or, you know, come on, just have a little something to eat. I love that. For it will give you strength, and not a hair on your head will, is to perish from any of you. And when he had said these things, listen to this, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. <laughs> Here's all these guys that are stri- starving and they're so hungry and Paul just breaks some bread and he encourages them and he gives thanks. And there's this sense of calm, but it's so reminiscent of Jesus breaking bread with the disciples If life was completely safe, Jesus would not have gone where he went. And so sometimes the American dream convinces us that we can have everything that we want and that comfort is the purpose. We're getting our kitchen redone right now. And there's a part of me that feels sad or guilty because I miss the old kitchen, like with the broken tiles it was bad, let me just tell you. But but sometimes I miss it because <laughs> I know life isn't supposed to be comfortable. And I have friends that live in the slums in Mathari, in Nairobi. And I don't want to grow hard-hearted. The le- this life is not about our own comfort. It really is about what the Apostle Paul wants, which is to preach the gospel to all. It would be easy to say that God will always keep you safe, and we should trust him, but he's going to bring us eventually through the storm. I'm going to close with this. I have a friend whose name is Olina May Welsh. She was a friend many, many years ago. and She was married to just a wonderful, godly man who was the chaplain of Wheaton College for a period of time. His name was Evan Welsh. After Evan had died... Uh, and Alina May was getting old, she helped start a ministry and helped uh, grow a ministry to those who were had special needs, those who were physically disabled and mentally um, had mental challenges, those who had Down syndrome and others. And she probably touched the lives of dozens or hundreds of people. And she just gave her life to some of those who were what we might call the least. And I remember we had a prayer time with our, a staff uh, of the church I had been a part of, and we're sitting near a lake. And I remember her, we were all sharing prayer requests, and I remember her prayer request. It was almost as if she could see to the other side of some dark waters, almost as if she could see her husband on the other side of the waters of death. And her prayer request was really just that she could make it through to the other side to be with Christ. And she's gone there now. Her image that she had in mind is a little bit like John Bunyan's celestial city crossing through the dark waters. And the point of the text is very simple is that God is going to bring you home to your final destination. That was why Luke told us this whole story. He wanted us to know 
that Paul would, God had said he'd get from Caesarea to Rome, and so that might not be your destination. That was his destination, and God was going to get him home. But the path wasn't going to be straight, and the waters weren't going to be calm, and the way was not going to be safe, but God would bring him home. And so I want you to walk in that and trust him this week, knowing that he's going to get you to the destination that he has for you. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that your gospel adventure, though it's uncertain, though it's not calm, though it's unsafe, that you're going to bring us to the place where you want us to be. We praise you for this in Christ's name. Amen.